0: Before I begin, as always I want to say thank you to all of you who have supported Outlines through Patreon and by Me A Coffee over the past couple of weeks. Thanks in particular to my newest patron, Paul. My supporters are the reason why I can continue to produce the show and I really couldn't do it without you all. This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some people may find distressing, so as always, listener discretion is advised. On Wednesday, the 16th of October 1985, a coma patient at Wexham Park Hospital in Slough died a little more than seven weeks after having sustained head injuries in a late night attack in Maidenhead, Berkshire. 63 year old Cyril Martin was a well known figure around the town. During the days, he filled his time doing odd jobs and gardening, and every evening he could be seen by the old clock tower close to Maidenhead Station, cheerfully greeting the commuters and offering them weather reports, which were, people thought, better than those of the TV weathermen. After his murder, Cyril would be described as one of the town's best-known and lovable characters, He was homeless, it was claimed, by choice, and in 1985 he was sleeping in a derelict hut out the back of what had, until recently, been Maidenhead's Art College. The Art College, which still stands on Marlow Road, has been a Grade 2 listed building since 1980 and nowadays its late Victorian red-brick façade and terracotta detailing feel out of place amongst the more modern, flat-fronted buildings which surround it. In October 1985, alongside an article about Cyril's death, a photograph was published. The caption read, With friends, Cyril photographed last year. The image itself shows Cyril with a flat cap on his head and round glasses, buttoned up in what appears to be a long coat and seated somewhere inside. He's leaning forward, one hand extending to where his friends, two dogs, their eyes caught in the camera flash, sit at his feet. Another photo shows his mother, 80-year-old Ellen, who stares sadly at the lens, her eyes wide, her worn-out expression enhanced by the slight tilt of her head. In her hand, she holds a small photograph of a young Cyril in uniform. First, Ellen said, Cyril served in the Merchant Navy. Then, during World War II, he transferred to the Royal Navy, where he was made a petty officer. After his death, Detective Superintendent Roy Payne, the man leading the hunt for his killers, would say of Cyril, he was a real character, and the fact that he lived a tramp-like existence makes not the slightest difference to our inquiries. When I started researching Cyril's case, I had two things to go on. One was a spreadsheet on unsolved murders published following a Freedom of Information request made to Thames Valley Police. It listed Cyril's name, police area, the murder weapon used, and the date. Although, in an indication perhaps of the current status of his case, the date is a year out. The other source was the website unsolvedmurders.co.uk. The detail was brief. It read, Cyril Martin was beaten to death with a blunt instrument. It was only when I really began my research in earnest that I realised the depth of Cyril's life story, and that how he became to be living what Roy Payne referred to as a tramp-like existence was, in itself, a whole other tale, one which can only be described as a tragedy. Because... Before Cyril Martin came to be living in a derelict hut behind an abandoned technical college in Maidenhead, he was a family man, devoted to his wife, with whom he had six sons. He had a job and a house, and then, in the words of his mother, his heart was broken and he went to pieces. The people of Maidenhead, who saw him every evening under the clock tower, And took heed of his weather predictions, had no idea of the events which had led him there. Events which began 17 years earlier, on the 16th of February, 1968. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines podcast. Back in February of 1968, the Martin family, natives to Maidenhead, lived at 5 Lincoln Road. Cyril and his wife, Beryl, were married in 1941, and a year later they welcomed the first of their six sons, all of whom would be born within ten years following their marriage. In the 1950s, the Martin family trundled between a few houses in Maidenhead, before settling into their home at Lincoln Road, where they lived until the late 60s. After the war, Cyril left the Navy and settled back in Berkshire with his family, where he found work in the building trade. By 1968, the couple's eldest son was already 26, the youngest 17, and Beryl and Cyril were on the cusp of seeing all their children become adults, soon to start lives of their own. Then, on February the 16th, 1968, a murder occurred, one which appears to have changed everything for the Martin family. It was a Friday evening and 69-year-old retired milkman Victor Keene was at home alone in his house on Holman Lees in Maidenhead, where he lived with his 24-year-old son David a DJ, who worked in a dance hall in the nearby town of Slough. Mr Keene had only recently retired from his job at Neville and Griffin Dairies. He'd been a milkman for so long that when he began his career as a young man, his rounds had still been made on a horse and cart. By the time he retired, though, the floats were electric. Speaking to the press in 1968... His manager at the dairy said of Victor, we knew Mr. Keane as Freddy. He was a real character, almost an institution. He was a wonderful old boy and we thought a lot of him. He reportedly left the post in the mid to late sixties, when his wife, Edith, became sick. Victor and Edith were reportedly a cheerful, friendly couple who chatted happily with their neighbours. They were, one resident said, the best neighbours we ever had. Victor was, according to the others on the street, a quiet man, not prone to gossip or interference, and another of his children, telephone engineer Victor Leonard Keane, spoke of how his father was generally very well. By 1967, sadly, Edith had passed away, and Victor, who, following his retirement, briefly worked part-time at ABC Cinemas in Maidenhead, now spent his days doing housework and digging in his small garden. That Friday, he'd passed the hours with a cup of tea at his neighbour, Kathleen Harris's house, followed by a trip to the shops, leaving the firewood he bought that day in a box by the back door of his house. Normally, the papers said, he would have been away on Fridays, as his habit was to visit his married daughter in Maidenhead. That night, though, he had no plans. At around 7pm, 13-year-old Susan Tyrrell, who lived with her parents next door to Victor, called around to ask to borrow a shilling for the electricity meter, and Victor seemed his normal, cheerful self when he answered the door. At around the same time, Mrs Tyrrell, Susan's mother, was alarmed to hear someone trying the handle on her back door. She waited, quietly, relieved to find that after what she described as a few minutes, the noise stopped. Their door was double-bolted, Mrs Tyrrell said, because the area had seen a recent spate of break-ins. Not long after that, Victor's neighbour Kathleen, who had recently returned from a friendly visit with Victor, was watching television when she heard what sounded like a repeated slow thudding coming through the walls. Alert. She listened closely hearing Victor exclaim, please don't hit me, don't hit me. Her first thought was that he and his son David were having an argument, but then she realised she could only hear one voice coming through the walls. Sensing that something was wrong, Mrs Harris rushed around knocking on the front door, but received no answer. She noticed that despite the silence, She could see a light coming from the dining room. Her concern mounting, she went around the back of the house and after banging on the door she tried the handle. Unusually, it was unlocked. Mrs Harris made her way into the kitchen, noting that the lights were on, both there and in the bathroom. It was then that she spotted a trail of blood stretching from the kitchen floor out into the hallway. From the kitchen, she went straight into the dining room, hearing nothing, but soon she noticed Victor. He was lying on his back near the fireplace, with blood on his face, hands and clothing. Bending over him was a man of, Kathleen thought, around the age of 26, He was slim, with black hair and blue staring eyes. He wore a navy blue suit, a collar and tie, and brown gloves. The man grabbed Kathleen by the throat and took her into the hallway, where he threw her to the floor, while she begged him not to hit her. Kneeling by her side, the man asked her repeatedly where Victor kept his money. She told him that she did not know requesting that he allow her to stand. The man agreed, but he grabbed her by the neck and led her back into the dining room. Tell him to tell me where the money is, the man ordered again. Kathleen looked at Victor, who was, by that point, gravely injured, and said, Tell me where the money is, Mr Keane, or he might kill me. Victor managed a gesture to his wallet, saying, it's lying on the table. It was said that Victor normally kept around £20 in the house, and added to that, the previous week he'd won on the football pools. It wasn't much cash, only about 38 shillings, but he'd been happy with the win, making sure to share the good news with his friends at the local pub that week. Kathleen grabbed the wallet and handed it to the man who turned and ran from the house. After he was gone, Mrs Harris, who was still badly shaken, had the presence of mind to remember that over the road lived a friend of Victor's, a retired ambulance attendant by the name of William Clark. She called for the police and an ambulance and then dashed across the street to fetch Mr Clark. Speaking later to the papers, he told them Mr Keene was still alive, and I loosened his belt to help him breathe. He was lying in a pool of blood, and I washed his face for him. Under his body lay the knife with which his fatal wounds were inflicted. Later, when Victor's body was examined by Home Office pathologist Keith Simpson... He was discovered to have died from an internal haemorrhage, due to a stab wound in his chest, which had caused extensive bleeding into his lung and subsequently filled his air passages. Dr Simpson discovered that there were several stab wounds on his left upper chest and the front of his left arm, as well as slash wounds on his chest and hands, and that he had heavy bruising across his right eye and extending to the bridge of his nose which was fractured. He also had minor bruising to his right cheek and upper lip. Sixty-nine-year-old Victor Keane was a slightly built man, and only five foot three in height. He wouldn't, one neighbour told the papers, have been able to put up much of a fight. In photographs published on Saturday the 17th of February in the Reading Evening Post, you see the houses of Holman Lees that Friday evening. Their white exteriors are luminous in the artificial lights as police stand guard outside Victor's house. Separating each property stands a waist-high white picket fence. Everything is neat and tidy, and what had happened there that evening could not feel more removed from the surroundings. Following Victor's death, police set up roadblocks on the exits out of town and began to search nearby pubs, buses and cars, looking for the man with the blue staring eyes. The investigation was led by Superintendent George Groombridge of Scotland Yard, who coordinated the roadblocks and arranged for a van consisting of three officers to take part in a constant patrol of the area around Holman Lees. A couple of miles away, across town, a man named Michael John Martin, the second youngest of Cyril and Beryl Martin's children, had something on his conscience. Michael was 18 years old, and had done a number of jobs since leaving secondary school at the age of 15. On January the 22nd of 1968, he had started working as a trainee spot welder with a Maidenhead-based firm called Kenya Holton Company. Martin was a keen amateur footballer who played with the Maidenhead Social Club, members of the Reading Combination League, with whom he barely missed a game. He was a good goalscorer and a popular figure on the team. He had a girlfriend, Julie Shepherd, who adored him. And if you'd have asked his mother, Beryl, she would have said that he was the most thoughtful boy and the most generous of all her sons. If you'd asked her whether or not Michael was capable of committing murder, she would have said no. Except that... The day after Victor Keane's death, this was exactly what he told his friends he had done. It was later reported that one of Martin's regular pubs was also that of Victor and his Holman Lee's neighbours. And while it wasn't stated explicitly, the theory was that Michael, who apparently knew Victor and his home address, had overheard him discussing his Paul's win in the pub one night on the week before his death. Sensing an opportunity, Michael, who would have assumed that Victor would be out as he normally was on a Friday night, decided to break into his house with the intent to commit robbery. Following his confession, Michael's friends contacted the police, and on Monday the 19th of February 1968, just three days after the murder of Victor Keene had occurred, he appeared before magistrates to be formally charged with murder. Michael stood alone in court. He applied for neither bail nor legal aid and had no representation. Just a few hours after Michael's court appearance, it was reported that Cyril, who was working at the time as a lorry driver, was involved in a four-vehicle pile-up on the A4 near the Coach and Horses pub at Maidenhead Thicket. A photograph of his crumpled lorry shows the extent of the damage, the front a mangled wreck. Despite his passenger sustaining only minor wounds, Cyril himself had suffered from a bad head injury and was quickly transferred under police escort from Wexham Park Hospital in Slough to the Central Middlesex Hospital. For a week he lay in bed in a critical condition, but... By the following Tuesday, he was described by a hospital spokesperson as being much better. He is up and about, the spokesperson said, and it won't be too long before he goes home. Despite these assertions, by the time that Michael Martin's trial came around at the end of April 1968, Cyril was still in hospital. The trial itself was a short-lived affair. At the committal hearing in March of 68, evidence from 17 witnesses was read out, and by the time that the April trial began, Michael had pleaded guilty. Despite this, Beryl Martin still struggled to believe that her son, who had no prior criminal record, could have committed murder. Following the announcement that Michael was to serve a life sentence, the judge told the court, this was a tragedy for all concerned. When asked about the events of that evening, Michael himself admitted that when he arrived at Victor's house with the intention of committing theft, he was surprised to find Mr Keene at home. As for the murder itself, he claimed that he was aware of how dreadful a crime it was and could give no excuses, The only explanation he could offer was, in his own words, I must have gone berserk. Not long after Michael Martin was sentenced, Cyril was finally well enough to return home from hospital. Though, as his mother Ellen would later tell the papers, he never fully recovered. And just a couple of months later, in July of that year, another tragedy struck Cyril. When his wife beryl who was only 46 years old suddenly died in recounting the story his mother who never once in her interview mentioned the murder of victor keene said that following beryl's death cyril was heartbroken she said he never got over the death of his wife and went to pieces His family broke up and he moved around between various digs and boarding houses. Eventually, he started sleeping rough. His mother asked him to come and live with her, but Cyril preferred to stay on the streets. Summing it up, Ellen said, Cyril loved his wife passionately and his world was never the same after she died. Seventeen years later, on the 21st of August 1985, Cyril was discovered by builders in the derelict hut behind Maidenhead Art College. He was unconscious, laying in a pool of blood and had a skull fracture. Taken immediately to hospital, police were initially unsure whether the injuries were accidental or as the result of an attack. By the following week, the official line was that Cyril Martin had been assaulted and it was revealed that, on the evening of his attack, Tuesday the 20th, he had been seen at around 10.55pm leaving the Bell Pub in King Street, Maidenhead. He was dressed in a worn donkey jacket and possibly had on a check cap and glasses. A little after that, he was seen again, this time 300 yards down the road outside the Brewer's Tea House on the High Street, not far from the Marlow Road Art College. He was in conversation with two men, and Detective Inspector Bill Holman told the papers that the police were anxious to trace them. As Cyril lay critically ill in London's Charing Cross Hospital, An urgent appeal was aired on the August's edition of Crime Watch. The programme showed the Art College, its facade covered with scaffolding. A photograph of the hut in which he was sleeping that evening was briefly shown too. In the image, more scaffolding is visible through the jagged cutout in the wall where a door should have stood. The floor is filthy and the ceiling no more than wooden boards held in place by long, narrow struts. If there was once a proper ceiling, it was no longer there. The programme itself speaks about Cyril's movements that evening, saying that, from the brewer's tea house, he would have walked under the A4 via the pedestrian subway which linked with Marlow Road, and then along a small, half-hedged-lined lane which ran along the side of the art college. Despite the nationwide appeal for the two men seen with Cyril outside the Brewer's Tea House, they were never traced. By the end of August, Cyril's chance of survival was deemed to be slim and he was transferred to Wexham Park Hospital the same hospital in which he'd spent months convalescing following his crash 17 years prior. This time, though, he couldn't pull through, and he died on October the 16th, 1985. Following a post-mortem examination, the investigation, which had until then been working on the assumption, but with no proof that he had been attacked... Became a fully fledged murder inquiry. On Tuesday, the 22nd of October, a fresh appeal was made of witnesses, and on the 23rd, it was confirmed that the police believed the motive to have been robbery. They stated that Cyril had withdrawn his pension of £60 the day before the assault, and that when he was found, he had only £3 on his person. It was also revealed that Cyril, who had been subject to a beating, as well as his head injuries, was probably asleep when the attack had begun. Evidently, this was a difficult case for the police. With so long passing between Cyril's attack and his death, and scarcely any witnesses to back up the timeline of that night, it must have been tricky to approach the investigation. Nevertheless, On Friday the 24th of January 1986, it was reported in the Reading Evening Post that a 28-year-old local man had been brought in for police questioning. Two other men were also detained, although by the time of the article going to print, they had already been released without charge. Sadly, This is the last information I can find on the investigation, and now, even when newspapers publish reports of unsolved crimes in Berkshire, what happened to Cyril seems to remain uncovered. I don't know if it's because he was homeless at the time, or perhaps there just wasn't enough to report on, but there was almost more detail to be found in the 1968 articles on his crash when the narrative was that he was the father of a murderer than there were in 1985, when he became a victim of murder himself. There's something about Cyril's case which has left me feeling so sad. I think most of us can pick out a few years in our lives where events have turned our futures from what we thought they would be to something entirely different. Some of us will have handled those changes with the help of family and friends, and others of us will have pushed through alone, much like Cyril decided to do. The murder of Victor Keane appears to have been the catalyst for everything that came after, and it's hard not to look at the case of Cyril Martin without thinking of the similarities his robbery-turned-murder shares with what happened to Victor. I can't help but think of the utter sadness that Cyril must have gone through. The sudden rearrangement of everything he knew and everything he thought his life would be. How he and his wife both paid differently for the sins of their son and how, ultimately, Cyril chose to live his life in his own way, preferring to be on the streets and to spend his days doing odd jobs his evenings under the old clock tower, forecasting the weather for those who wanted to hear. The last in the string of tragedies which befell Cyril Martin is that his death has been reduced down to no more than one short line on a single website, because to say only that he was beaten to death with a blunt instrument fails to even scratch the surface of his story or to do justice to his suffering. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.